I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Greg Lukianoff is the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. He is the author of Unlearning Liberty and Freedom from Speech, and co-authored the 2018 New York Times bestseller, The Coddling of the American Mind with Jonathan Haidt. Most recently, he co-authored The Canceling of the American Mind. Cancel culture undermines trust and threatens us all, but there is a solution with Ricky Schlott. Greg, it's so good to have you back on. Yeah, it's great to talk to you again. Now, last time we spoke back in March of 2021, we did a broad overview of the legal foundations of free speech in America, why this freedom is so important to a diverse pluralistic society like ours, and why I think crucially, freedom of speech is vital to freedom of thought and, quote, the project of human knowledge, to use your words. So to call back to that conversation for a moment, I'd love for you to share with us what you call, quote, the pure informational theory of free speech and why you believe it's so foundational. Oh, thank you. The pure informational theory of free speech that I sometimes, when I'm trying to be a little more literary, called the lab and the looking glass theory, is my sort of idiosyncratic free speech philosophy. Even though it is to a degree kind of alluded to in other sort of free speech theories, I don't think it's made explicit enough and emphasized enough. And that is that if the humanist project is essentially to know the world as it is, or actually even before that, like I even think of Stoicism and Buddhism, every philosophy of the world to some degree is an idea that you could actually know the world as it actually is. And it turns out that we discovered as we started looking into it, and particularly with the scientific revolution, that the world is actually very difficult to know accurately. We're incredibly biased creatures. We have short memories. Our senses lie to us. Our intuitions lie to us. We have all sorts of myths and superstitions in our past that interfere with our ability to understand the world. And the scientific method was a humble process by which we discovered how little we actually knew and tried to chip away at our own ignorance, the vast ocean of our ignorance. And the point that I try to make for freedom of speech is, of course, first of all, freedom of speech, you can't have a scientific revolution without at least some amount of freedom of speech. And that's one of the reasons why some of the first battles over freedom of speech after the printing press were about science, the trials of Galileo, for example, because that is the classic search for truth running up against religious authority, running up against power, tradition, superstition, etc. And so certainly you need freedom of speech, at least within certain spheres and freedom of inquiry, the freedom to boldly question in order to have any kind of scientific progress, any kind of progress, period. But what I think people don't fully appreciate is even when you get outside of the democratic or scientific sphere, if you want to know the world as it is, which you should want to know the world as it actually exists, because we're not very good at seeing that very clearly, you need to know what people really think and why, full stop. And even though this is what might be called a utilitarian defense of freedom of speech, it's extremely expansive in its implications. Because what I constantly have to explain to people is you are not safer for knowing less about what people actually think. Like what's happening on campuses right now? There seems to be, you know, a movement, not just on the right, but I'd say right, left and center that would like to sort of silence pro Hamas and pro Palestinian voices on campus. And we have seen an uptick in that on campus since October 7th. And I always have to remind people, I'm like, no, this is what students really think. It's especially important you to know, not even if it's disturbing, but especially if it's disturbing. Discovering there are a lot of students who instinctively just think Israel has to be the bad guy and the Palestinians have to be the good guy because one is conceived of being more powerful than the other. That's incredibly important knowledge to have about the world. So the pure informational theory of freedom of speech is that everything someone says is information about some aspect of the world, of their interior world, of their understandings, of their misunderstandings. And all of this is important to know to understand the world as it is. And in light of that, censorship starts to seem as small-minded and foolish as it actually is. That essentially, it's like my British mother's kind of don't talk about difficult or controversial things at the dinner table doesn't make those issues go away. Um, and it's naive to think it ever possibly could. Indeed, thanks to the power of group polarization, what censorship does is it encourages people to talk to people they already agree with. And the social science is very strong on this. If you only talk to people you agree with, you tend to become much more radicalized in the direction of your group. 
I imagine this is in part or in whole why you have named your substack the eternally radical idea. That's exactly why. You've said, quote, America is exceptional in a number of ways, but some of our dynamics are incredibly typical, end quote. And I think what makes free speech such a radical idea forever is that it is so human to want to surround yourself with people who agree with you. Absolutely. It's comforting. It helps you make sense of the world. Very few people, aside from perhaps yourself and a few others, like getting into the arena, like conflict. Most of us do our best in our entire lives to avoid it. Oh, to be clear, I don't even particularly like conflict. I, 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 I remember when everybody was telling me that I'd make a good lawyer because I like to argue. And I always had to correct them. I'm like, no, I don't actually like to argue. I find it exhausting, but I have strong principles and opinions. So I don't like to argue. I just feel that I have to. To your point about how so many of our dynamics are incredibly typical, I think by typical, you must just mean human. Absolutely. And, when, and then sometimes when I say typical, there's a kind of American parochialism that sometimes thinks that all the rest of the world looks like the United States. <laughs> and I was really blown away by this, particularly when I started taking human rights classes at Stanford Law School, to see these very highly educated people from the Harvards and the Yales, etc., kind of think the rest of the world looked more or less like the San Francisco Bay Area <laughs> around which Stanford is situated or close to which the Stanford is situated. And my dad grew up in Yugoslavia, but he's Russian. So he always had an outsider's point of view on that very troubled part of the world. My mother's ethnically Irish, grew up in Britain, and I've lived in Prague, I've lived in Switzerland. I've traveled an awful lot, and I grew up with other immigrant kids in my neighborhood from everywhere, from Peru, Brazil, Korea, Vietnam, etc. And the tendency of Americans to project our norms and our history on other people is something that a lot of other countries do as well. And in that sense, it's typical and not all that surprising. But the lack of kind of checking themselves to say, maybe I don't know enough about what the cultural norms are in Serbia, for example, and maybe they're not exactly like ours is something that we don't seem to ask ourselves nearly enough. Where, where's your family from again? If I remember correctly, you had an interesting history. On my mother's side, I'm Armenian. They came over in 1920 after the genocide, and my father's side of the family came over from Ireland around 1870 or so. Oh, yeah. Those two great oppressive nations, <laughs> Ireland and Armenia. Yes, the great conquerors. Yes. Yeah. Victims of history. It's one of the many reasons why immigration is so vital. I think especially in, in a country like America, where freedom of expression is constantly under threat, we need to replenish our nation with people who have immediate contact with the other thing, with the lack thereof. I could not agree more. And I will say this, Michael, something that has freaked me out is how often in my work, someone will from law school will pop out and suddenly almost kind of like whisper, <laughs> you know, in an email, I really love what you do. What you're doing is so important. I've been following you since law school. Great work. And particularly if the person, someone I, I typically thought of being very much on the left, I'm sort of pleasantly surprised. But then either I ask them or they offer. It's like, oh, yeah, because my mother grew up behind the Iron Curtain or my dad fled communist China or my family ran into the authoritarians in Venezuela. So many of the stories end up being something that they have some actual literal familial connection to totalitarianism or authoritarianism. And it started to freak me out a little bit because I'm kind of like, are there people who are fifth generation Americans who are really still good on free speech? And I know the answer is yes. And that's clear on the polling. But certainly at more kind of like elite levels, it does kind of seem like the kind of wealthy, hyper-educated kids who go to the what I dismissively sometimes call the fancies are the ones who are the most sort of eye-rolly at small L liberalism these days. Even if you are fifth generation or more, supporting a principle like free speech, even if you are a strong supporter of it, just by the very nature of your removal from oppression through the generations is going to have to be a kind of abstractly based principle. So on that note, your first book with the naming convention, The Coddling of the American Mind in 2018 with Jonathan Haidt, based on the 2015 essay in The Atlantic by the same name, then you have The Canceling of the American Mind, co-authored with Ricky. And in 1987, you wrote your first book in this series, The Closing of the American Mind, How Higher Education Has <laughs> Failed Democracy and Impoverished the Souls of Today's Students. And of course, I'm kidding, Greg, I think you were 12 
when Alan Bloom's book was published. Oh, that's good math. Yeah, I was about 12. (laughs) These two recent books clearly, I mean, just from the name alone, evoke that one. Sure. Bloom, to tie it to what we're talking about, he was railing against a kind of moral relativism, which I think becomes endemic when you are too far removed from what your principles are rooted in. So Closing in the American Mind, you know, is this book that in sort of like the collective imagination and Jonathan Rauch always points out to me, Greg, you're always going to be disappointed on how little people actually read (laughs) and how often people like, oh, yeah, I know that book, but they haven't actually read it or finished it. Closing the American Mind is sometimes kind of lumped together with like Dinesh D'Souza's illiberal education and some of these more kind of bomb throwy conservative pieces from the 80s and 90s. And meanwhile, it's an incredibly thoughtful, well-written, prescient book. But I never liked the fact that the editors at The Atlantic decided last minute to rename our article Coddling the American Mind because I wanted to be very clear that we were saying something quite different from what Bloom was saying. While at the same time being clear, I have tremendous respect for what he was saying. I didn't want people to confuse the argument that he was making with one that we're making, which is a much different argument in coddling, which is that we're teaching Generation Z the mental habits of anxious and depressed people. And it was a sufficiently distinct argument that I wanted to name it something that really brought attention to that. So my preferred name for it was disempowered. And that's what we signed the contract under. And at the very last minute, again, Penguin said the distributors aren't willing to distribute it unless you call it coddling of the American mind because your titles are boring. So I've had to live with it. I leaned into it for canceling of the American mind because I'm stuck with a shtick, so I might as well lean into it. But when it comes to the missing moral relativism part. Moral relativism, by the way, I talk about this in Unlearning Liberty, my first book, 2012. I call it selective relativism. And I definitely saw this in those same human rights classes where people were incredibly relativistic about other cultures. I cited the example of a white middle-aged woman that I was in the class with chiding people for not understanding the beauty of female genital mutilation in these other cultures and being like, okay, I'm sorry. Like, if we can't just say that's wrong, then let's cancel human rights class altogether because we've lost our way. But this very same person and the very same sort of type of person was anything but morally relativistic when she looked at the United States and essentially had a relatively simple narrative of good guys versus bad guys, sometimes depending on where they lived and certainly for who they voted for. So the moral relativism was always selective to begin with because nobody can live their life, for example, as a full moral relativist. But I agree with David French, and he beat me to saying this many years ago, is that the problem on campus today is not moral relativism. It's moral absolutism. And it's a simplified narrative of what we call in coddling of the American mind, common enemy identity politics winning versus common humanity identity politics. And what we mean by common enemy is very much like it sounds that essentially it's gathering groups together to rather than say what we have in common with each other, our common humanity, which is the modus operandi of all the successful civil rights movements prior to the more recent past is to actually make the point that, you know, you got to expand your circle to grow the human family, that we all have a lot in common. But instead to say, hey, you know what? We all have something in common that we're oppressed by powerful people and by powerful forces. And you can see this on steroids, basically on campus right now, like I mentioned, where students have a very simplistic narrative of essentially Israel is just the evil oppressor and Palestine is just the innocent oppressed. And therefore, any action by one against the other is either fully justified or can never be justified. And meanwhile, this is the opposite of sophistication. This is the opposite of the kind of troubled complexifying of the world that people like, I think, Abby Hoffman used to criticize about thinking people, they can't take action because everything to them is so complicated. And meanwhile, it's kind of like, well, hell yeah, actually, you should be very circumspect about what action you take or what political solutions you advocate for, because the world is more complicated than particularly intellectuals and educated people tend to understand. And a lot of time with the victory of passion over reason have led to some of the greatest atrocities in human history. I can't remember who said this, but on your point about how Americans tend to project their own history and their own battles or victories or losses onto other countries, their own histories onto other countries. I can't remember who the heck said it, but it was something to the effect of, and this was a conservative speaker, but they said, when progressives look at global conflicts, they just have to figure out which side are the black people. 
<laughs> to use his words. And I have never heard that before. I don't know if I agree with his take, but that idea that you're getting at. Which side is the oppressed people? Exactly. Which side are the oppressed and the oppressors? Which side are quote unquote white or quote unquote black, right? Which side is the underdog, more or less? Yes. It's a toxic kind of American exceptionalism that sees its own reflection no matter where in the world it looks. Yeah, I talk about this. I talk about the two different kinds of American exceptionalism, both of which are foolish. There's the positive exceptionalism that I bristled at when I was a kid with a Russian dad who talks about the 12th century like it happened yesterday and is still kind of mad about things that happened centuries ago as if they were personal affronts. I grew up with a very rich sense of history and a almost like bemused sense of how important America tended to think it was when it's essentially, by most standards, kind of a new country and that really started having its biggest global impact only in the last, say, 150 years. And that there was a huge rich history of the world before that. And the American tendency to think that we're kind of responsible for all the good in the world um, is foolish. And here I was thinking about when I was studying World War II in like seventh or sixth or seventh grade, that basically the American bomber campaign is what won World War II. And being like, oh, and all the Soviet soldiers, (laughs) I think you're, you're missing the boat on this. Yes. And I bristled at that. But at the same time, I'm also aware enough of history to, I don't bristle at all at the idea that America is a uniquely historically distinct and special country with a lot of very positive attributes, including being, even though like, I remember they got in an argument with someone on Twitter saying like, well, you know, there are more diverse countries in the world and you guys never point this out. And I'm like, I know Russia and India can both claim to have vast ethnic diversity, but there is something different about a country where the diversity isn't peoples who grew up and spent the last several centuries right next to each other, like America and Brazil and and some other countries are countries where two populations who had no meaningful interaction with them for most of human history living on the same block coming from completely different continents. It is something quite special. The fact that we, you know, the longest lasting democracy is quite special. Our, our commitment to the Bill of Rights is quite special. And when I'm feeling particularly proud, I, I try to remind people that a lot of the ideas embodied in the founding are very closely related to and inspirations for modern ideas of human rights. So I think there is some exceptionality, but on one side of the fence, we tend to exaggerate it. The other one that I almost find more irritating is negative American exceptionalism, where we're responsible for all the evil in the world and that basically you can't explain any even relatively minor problem in either country by somehow pointing it back to the United States or some kind of argument about white supremacy that comes from the United States. And it can be this incredibly reductive and childish way of looking at the world. And I call them both narcissism when I'm feeling not super charitable. The way I put it is, listen, if you think daddy is the best person in the world and is responsible for all good things in the world, that's narcissism. But if you think daddy is the worst person in the world, literally, and is responsible for all the evil in the world, that is also narcissism, just with a different flavor. And again, it's I hate to put it this way, but it's just the opposite of sophistication. Well, we could go down the rabbit hole of cognitive behavioral therapy, which I know is a point that you and I share in our respective histories, but it's a kind of faulty thinking. And speaking of faulty thinking, to go back to coddling, you wrote about the three great untruths, which were the untruth of fragility or what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, the untruth of emotional reasoning or always trust your feelings and the untruth of us versus them or life is a battle between good people and evil people. In canceling, you and Ricky introduce a fourth one, the great untruth of ad hominem. And I'd love for you to talk a bit about that. Yeah, the great untruth of ad hominem is us trying to get at the way we argue as a society. And one of the big critiques in canceling in the American mind, one of the big things we're trying to get across is, well, first, we're trying to get across cancel culture is real and it's happening on a historic scale and at a level that we're going to be studying it in 100 years. But part two is to get people to rethink the function that cancel culture serves and to just conceptualize it more as just the nastiest, meanest part of a dysfunctional way of arguing that we engage in, particularly in the age of social media, that allows for all of these rhetorical tricks and dodges that will never actually get you to the truth finding function of freedom of speech or freedom of inquiry. And so one of the things we try to point out is how often when you're debating someone in American society today, particularly online, the argument isn't my opponent is wrong on the facts. Oftentimes the argument is, well, my opponent is a terrible person 
which has a funny relationship to the truth, which the answer to that is, okay, granted, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong on whether or not this person's a terrible person, but that unfortunately historically tends to be relatively irrelevant to whether or not that person is wrong or right. And so we tried to sum this up in a fourth grade in truth. We didn't want to do three more. We wanted to just have one very simple one. And I always kind of flubbed the final wording of it, but it's essentially that no bad person has any good opinion. And then in parentheses, we usually put, and all people are arguably bad. <laughs> and th this also comes from the way we sort of villainize people on either side of the political fence. So step one of what we call the perfect rhetorical fortress, which is the absolutely kind of weirdly magnificent mechanism that the left is able to use in order to get out of directly addressing the argument their opponent is making is that if you label someone conservative, you don't have to listen to them anymore. And we talk about the efficient rhetorical fortress, which is a stripped down but highly effective fortress on the right, where the right does the same thing, which is can I dub you, magically declare you to be woke or liberal or lefty, etc. And we really try to stress here, to be clear, this gets applied to everyone. We're not just talking about the 36% of people who self-describe as conservative. We're talking about the 99% of people who some ideologue can actually just claim is conservative and then jump the weird illogical extra step to, and therefore I don't have to listen to them. We saw this on spectacular display on a truly embarrassing article by a critic of ours, Marianne Franks, who for some reason is like a respected First Amendment scholar. I've read two articles by her, and I don't think she cites any case law at all. And her argument is primarily that cancel culture isn't real. It's just a right wing plot made up by Fox News and for which she cites things like alternate <laughs> to prove and is still published in prestigious journals. But it looks like her previous article making this exact same argument without engaging with any of the data, without for once taking the possibility she might be dreadfully wrong seriously. The more recent one, she decided to up the temperature to, no, this isn't just a right wing plot. This isn't just a Fox News plot. But people who believe in cancel culture are actually neo-Confederates because apparently dubbing people like us right wing, which we're not, wasn't good enough. They had to go to something even more inflammatory and even more evil. It's kind of like when people really don't want you to listen to somebody is to suddenly start calling someone not just right wing, but hard right. But neo-Confederate really takes the case. And what I'm getting at with this kind of attempt to portray people as bad people, because that's what both sides are saying, by the way, is that if you're a conservative, you're a bad person and therefore I don't have to listen to you. But it, it's made incredibly clear when you start calling people neo-Confederates. And just to show how effective this first prong in the perfect rhetorical fortress has been, a lot of the article is devoted to explaining that not just, you know, groups like Fire or Fox News are neo-Confederates, but that the ACLU and the New York Times are neo-Confederates because they've made the obvious, very well-supported point that cancel culture is real and people are concerned about it. So you can see these things on display all over the place. It is especially embarrassing when you see it in like scholarly journals engaging in this kind of like, if I call you the right name, I don't have to listen to you anymore. But unfortunately, that is the embarrassing state of an awful lot of academia today. I think, though, one of the problems we have with language today is that once it enters the popular lexicon, it eventually just starts to break down. It becomes watered down from overuse. You can see this with a word like woke, which was in the black community for decades and basically meant just alert to social injustices, right? And now it's being used by self-identified conservatives when there's a person of color in a Disney movie. Yeah, exactly. So to steel man or perhaps to use a phrase by a mutual acquaintance of ours who made all the hot sauce at my wedding, Angel Eduardo. Oh man, he makes great hot sauce. <laughs> he makes excellent hot sauce. Amazing employee. I get to write with him frequently now. He, he's a lovely dude. He is a very lovely dude. But if we were to star man this, cancel culture, I agree with you that it exists, but it is also overused. So what would be an accurate definition of cancel culture that hopefully perhaps not 100% of people could agree on, but maybe 90% of people could agree? We spent a lot of time in, in the first chapter of the book talking about other potential definitions of cancel culture, partially to make the point that, no, we don't think that there is probably one perfect definition of cancel culture, or maybe some of the ones that might fit might be perfect in the sense that they kind of capture its fundamental qualities. 
might be too sort of vague and broad, whereas, say, Jonathan Rausch's seven-point evaluation in which if any two of these are happening, you're being canceled might be a little too specific almost, even though I think it's one of the best ones out there. We tried to come up with one that was sort of balancing both. And the most important thing for me to get across, though, is to try to make the argument that cancel culture is a good name for the current sort of mass censorship moment we're in. So it's very explicitly a historical definition, just the same way we refer to Red Scare 1 or the Palmer Raids, you know, in the 1920s or Red Scare 2 or McCarthyism in the 1950s or the Victorian era or the Sedition Act of 1798. We have names for these periods of mass censorship. And my proposal, my and Ricky's proposal is essentially that we should be calling this current era the age of cancel culture. And therefore, our definition is the uptick of campaigns to get people fired, deplatformed, punished, expelled, etc. The uptick around 2014 and accelerating around 2017 for speech that would be protected under the First Amendment. Now, we expand on what we mean by that in the appendix, partially to not bog down the book with getting overly technical. But what we're saying there is more or less an analogy to public employee law, that essentially under public employee law, public employees who aren't spokespeople for departments, for example, are considered to have at least some free speech rights, particularly when they're off the job, in order to express concern over issues of public concern. So we're trying to say, like, the public employee body of law actually provides some common sense ways of thinking about what is and is not cancel culture. And then, of course, the final part of it and the culture of fear that results from people losing their jobs or otherwise having their lives ruined. And one thing you'll notice about the definition is there's no political part in it. We don't actually say it's something coming from the left or something coming from the right. And because it's apolitical, we're able to recognize the truth, which is that some cancel culture comes from the left and some comes from the right. I don't, however, I want to be very clear about this because we got called out in commentary magazine as if we were saying that it's just as much on the left as the right. No, that would be dishonest as well. On campuses, it's very much more from the left. When we looked at student cancellations, it was practically all of them were from the left. When we looked at professor cancellations, interestingly, of the 1,000, 1,000 attempts to get professors fired that we looked into, about two-thirds of them resulted in some punishment and about a third of the punishments overall came from the right initially. Now, of course, conservative critics have pointed out, yeah, it might have come initially from Fox News or Turning Point USA's scholar watch list or Todd Starnes, a conservative columnist for Fox News. But ultimately, the people pulling the trigger, getting the people fired, given that administrations are overwhelmingly left leaning, that they're probably actually people on the left. And I'm like, OK, fine. And it gets me back to a point that I made many years ago, that given that universities are overwhelmingly run and staffed by people who are more left leaning, that if the left was as good on free speech as they were, or at least they claimed to be when I was a kid, and I still, by the way, still consider myself center left, none of these problems would be happening. They'd be standing up for the conservatives and the liberals alike. So that's our definition. It it is historical. We try to be very clear that it's we do take on both left and right, but we also try to be very clear that we're not going to pretend that they're symmetrical. We spend three chapters in the book on cancel culture coming from legislation, which is a little bit of a deviation because it doesn't fit our definition precisely well. But we did want to call out things like the Stop Woke Act in Florida as being certainly part of something that makes the environment for free speech on campus harder, although so far FIRE and the ACLU have defeated that in court, and I think we're going to defeat it again on appeal. And that is the one threat to curricular speech on campus that has come out of legislatures, contrary to some of the stuff you might have heard. We also talk about some of the book banning stuff, which we fully admit some of it is more complicated than some groups are making it sound, including books that I think a lot of Americans would say, maybe that isn't age appropriate for 14 year olds, this particular book. But we try to address that with some amount of nuance while recognizing that if people are getting arrested, which happens for books that they have, you know, at a public library, that's book banning and that's concerning. And then we also address some of the stuff coming from people, including Trump, trying to get journalists fired, for example, and cancel culture within conservative media as well. To play devil's advocate on the topic of academic freedom. Sure. What marks a professor's job? It's a job. What marks it as more special or more protected than a plumber's job or an office worker's? I think everyone would agree that it's one thing, or at least most people would. It's one thing to be protected from the government for your private or 
public speech, right? You don't want to get tossed in jail because of something you said. But isn't it another thing to face repercussions for what you say at work? If I were to say something at work and a coworker or a customer reported me to my boss, isn't it well within my boss's rights to let me go? And wouldn't the inability of my boss to fire me be an infringement on their right to run their business as they see fit? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad we're able to unpack this a little bit more because another criticism we're getting is people not understanding what our definition actually means. So, so let's put some meat on the bones to cancel culture in the current environment. There was a professor who was part of a journal, but it was a private scholarly journal, not run by the rules of First Amendment that would apply like at a public university, for example. And he lost his job after retweeting a Onion article that was pro-Palestinian. And he lost his job after retweeting that and defending the retweeting it. And I think of that as cancel culture, because when you apply the analysis, would a public employee have lost their job for this kind of extracurricular speech? No. But when it comes to some of the other cases, you know, when people have the concern that maybe an employee that they'd extended an offer to might actually be anti-Semitic or that's something that the case law is also kind of clear that public employees have and continue to be fired sometimes if they indicate things that indicate they might have discriminatory attitudes towards their fellow employees. So the public employee part introduces a great deal of nuance. And whenever I talk about this, the very first thing I try to remember to say is that employers have a First Amendment right of association to decide who they hire and who they don't. And we support that. We will go into court as an organization fire to defend employers' rights to make those kind of decisions itself. And we very much oppose short-sighted laws like those proposed by Vivek Ramaswamy or on the left, Genevieve Lakier, that would actually try to make it so that you couldn't fire someone based on their political speech. And I think it's particularly funny that Vivek thinks that having that law would somehow battle wokeness because the people most likely to take advantage of those laws, in my experience, would actually probably be people more on the left. But we definitely defend the right of freedom association of corporations to decide who they hire. The caution that we're making is a cultural one that essentially, and I want, and conservatives are getting particularly skeptical of this at the moment, and I, I always want to make this argument to them. Imagine a country in which every corporation is both a widget factory and a political organization with particular points of view, usually established by either the boss or sometimes by the angriest employees at the given organization. And you could be fired for disagreeing with them. And this should not be too hard for conservatives to imagine because 2020 and 2021 started to feel that way. That essentially, like if you said, if you disagreed with the organization's myriad positions on every social justice issue of the day, that you were risking your career and could very well be fired. Now, do I believe that corporations can and should have the right to do that? Absolutely. But if you had a country in which every corporation did this, you would end up effectively with a place that, yes, you have a First Amendment right to your political opinion, but in practice, you don't really have a right to express your opinion without being fired. So when you're making a cultural argument, it's more for a thumb on the scale for, as we talk about in the book, sort of old fashioned idioms like everyone's entitled to their opinion. I just want employers to do that first, to actually say to themselves, OK, this jackass did something I don't like in public and I'm going to fire him now that the mob is mad at me. I would want them to, one, tell the mob, hey, we don't respond right away to these kind of things. We're going to we're going to initiate a process to look into this if we think it's serious enough. But responding directly to an angry mob is always a dumb idea. And cancel culture has a tendency to sort of evaporate after a couple of weeks. And then you can look at things with clearer eyes and then to really ask themselves, am I helping create a world in which people aren't really entitled to their opinion if they want to have a livelihood? Now, do I think that thumb on the scale is going to potentially keep ridiculous cases like we saw where I can't remember the name of the journalist at this moment, but uh, he retweeted a joke for the Washington Post, kind of a relatively funny joke, but a little edgy and was immediately suspended. Oh, it was Dave Weigel who was suspended from the Washington Post. Hopefully that would actually give some corporations a little bit more encouragement to say, you know what, we don't have to do this. Our employees have private lives. They have opinions. We're not going to start policing what jokes they retweet. Do I think that's going to be enough for a corporation that thinks they might be hiring someone who is rabidly anti-Israel for someone who might actually be in a job where they'd actually have to work with clients from Israel or work with Israeli employees or work with Jewish employees? 
I think that some on the scale might not be enough in that case, but I do want people to be a little more circumspect before they decide that I'm going to fire you over your opinion. Conservative activist Christopher Rufo, who was a major proponent of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's Stop Woke Act, which regulates what can be taught in Florida schools, has been a major advocate for limiting what subjects educators in public K-12 and universities can and should teach. And his argument, as I understand it and can best represent it, is that private institutions can do whatever they please, but if you receive federal money, you're at the will of the taxpayer, and that eliminating courses and subjects is no different than adding them in the way that some universities don't have a film department, and that's not an issue. What's wrong with eliminating a gender studies department? You know, we have, we have an ongoing sort of battle with Chris Rufo, and my primary argument with him that he seems to kind of gloss over is it's really more or less just about the Stop Woke Act, which was a law that forced the Florida attorneys to go into court and actually make the argument that under this limitation on what you can teach at Florida state schools in Florida, you could make an argument against affirmative action in class, but you couldn't make one for affirmative action in class. And I point that one out because that's textbook viewpoint discrimination, and that's just not allowed under the First Amendment. And that means that not only is that not okay at a public college, even if the government is attaching that condition to a federal funding for private college, it's still violating its own commitments to the First Amendment. So we warned them about this, saying, listen, this is unconstitutional. It will basically get laughed out of court. And please don't pass this. And then they did pass it. And then the ACLU and FIRE challenged it, and we've defeated it so far. And I think we will again on appeal. But here's the bigger thing and why conservatives should be mad about this, about the passage of the Stop Woke Act. Nobody in the country believes in higher education reform more than I do. I think we need profound reform. The entire book, Canceling the American Mind, and to a lesser degree, Coddling the American Mind, is a, an impassioned, data-based, example-based argument for why we badly need significant higher education reform in any variety of ways. But what happened when they passed this obviously unconstitutional law is the narrative immediately changed nationally. And it even included people who are awesome on academic freedom and people I consider great allies and great friends to the cause of higher education reform, very clear eyed about the problem of cancel culture. People like Amna Khalid and Steve, her husband, I can't remember his last name, and the Academic Freedom Association, for example, you know, like real serious people out there, they rightfully said this is incredibly unconstitutional. And it's probably one of the most unconstitutional laws we've ever seen. I even referred to it for a while there as the most unconstitutional attack on academic freedom I'd seen. And if you look at particularly people like the Michael Barabays and Jennifer Ruths, the people who, despite being members of the American Association of University Professors, are passionate advocates for limiting academic freedom. And their argument is that we have to ban anything that's arguably white supremacy, which, of course, we know, since they also cite critical race theory, can be practically anything they don't like. Or, once again, Marianne Franks, how much this became advocates all over the country saying, it's the new McCarthyism, we're being attacked, this is an unconstitutional law. And there was no response to it other than, yeah, no, it is unconstitutional, and it should not have been passed. But it completely derailed the higher education reform movement. It was a pointless endeavor into establishing something really obvious that we told them the whole time that this was unconstitutional. And it set us back possibly years in the effort to do higher education reform. So that's the center of the beef. Meanwhile, when he talks about having rules applied to K through 12 curriculum, well, guess what? The government has a lot of power in deciding K through 12 curriculum. But the law is very clear that if the government comes in and says, you can't have the following viewpoints or teach the following subjects in higher ed, that's different. On the other hand, when the various state schools said, we're going to eliminate the following majors at these universities, yeah, they can absolutely do that. And honestly, in the interest of higher education reform, I think we should be putting everything on the table and probably dramatically figuring out ways to de-bureaucratize universities so that the cost of educating a single student doesn't keep going up every year to ever dizzying heights. There's a time-worn phrase that I'll paraphrase here. Everyone approves a speech they agree with. And while freedom of speech on campus has, over the last decade, been attacked by people across the political spectrum, as you've noted, I think it's safe to say that the majority of those attacks, 
as you also noted, have come from people who self-identify as left-wing. And so it hasn't been uncommon for those same people to accuse fire of being right-wing because I think the logic goes, if most of those facing cancellation are people they perceive as right-wing, then only a right-wing organization would defend them, which makes me think they've forgotten the history of the ACLU, but I digress. (laughs) Right. But as students now, today, and professors are being silenced, fired, having job offers rescinded, effectively being canceled for pro-Palestine or, let's just say it, pro-Hamas statements on campus, some of the same people who in the past stated that there was no free speech crisis, who said that cancellation was merely consequences, are speaking out about the importance of free speech. And without irony, some folks on the right who championed free speech several years ago are gleefully celebrating these cancellations, taking, I guess you could say, a a what's good for the goose is good for the gander angle. There was this recent poll from the Knight Foundation that showed that support for free speech is pretty high in the abstract. About 91% of Americans support it. But it seems that once we get into specific instances, support just plummets. Yeah. I have a piece in The Atlantic that came out on Tuesday. It's a good one. Thank you. I'm proud of it. It's my first time in The Atlantic. I actually originally said since coddling came out, but there was actually an article I did with Height that speech is not violence that I think came out in 2018. So I need to update that. Anyway, I think our original title for it was the selective memory of the new McCarthyism crowd (laughs) because I was just blown away reading several articles that talked about how now people are getting in trouble for their opinions on campus. And it's like... And this one in Politico is kind of like, we have to look back to 9-11. I'm like, no, I actually know the data backwards and forwards on 9-11. There were three professors who were fired and all three of them, the firings were justified by things that universities could actually fire you for. And they also said, or going back to McCarthyism to show this level of people's speech being threatened. And it's like, no, guys, listen, are we seeing an uptick in pro-Palestinian speech being targeted on campus? Absolutely. We're seeing about twice as many case submissions as we saw last year in which pro-Palestinian speech is getting in trouble. Of course, on the right, they'll say, well, well, some of that isn't protected and point out like the threats and the intimidation and the true threats and intimidation, racial harassment, stalking. And I always have to be clear, no, no, we're not talking about those cases. We don't count those cases because if you're engaging in unprotected speech, particularly if it's threats, like that is not at all a fire case. We're talking about things that are clearly protected, you know, if offensive. But even if we have an insanely busy December, we're still not going to be in the ballpark of how many cases we saw in 2020 and 2021, which are the two worst years for academic freedom I am, full stop, familiar with. And that includes McCarthyism in terms of the number of professors being fired. It's arguable that there were times in the 1930s that were bad. There was like one college where practically all the professors were fired in the 1930s. But one big difference there is it wasn't the case that academic freedom was protected by the First Amendment back then. It wasn't until 1957. But even schools hadn't adopted contractual promises of academic freedom. So in the era when all schools have contractual promises of freedom of speech and academic freedom for professors and all public schools and all private schools and non-sectarian private schools in California are bound by strong First Amendment protections. There's been nothing like this. So the the article, which I would definitely love people to read, is making the argument that, well, you know, welcome to the party, guys. This has been really bad for a long time. And I hope this will now get some of the people who sort of cavalierly said there's no such thing as cancel culture. There is just consequence culture or there's just accountability culture. will reevaluate that now that they actually are seeing that their own ox is being gored. Now, the disappointing thing, though, is there is so much power. There is so much such a closed universe in which people like Marianne Church live that they can actually continue just pretending, oh, no, no, none of this is real. It's just made up by Fox News. There's only McCarthyism and what's happening today to pro-Palestinian voices and no amount of data. Well, they just won't take seriously any amount of data to the contrary. Yes. And the essay in The Atlantic is the latest victims of the free speech crisis. I'll link it in the show notes. It's a very good one. When I think An episode of this show is especially important. I've taken to reaching out to people close to me, especially if they have a different viewpoint or temperament than I do, and asking them if they have a question that they would like me to include. And I think this is an especially good one that I've received for this episode, because I think it does justice to a real gray area that I believe many Americans struggle with. And that is, 
why is incitement to violence or imminent lawless action not protected speech, but speech that creates an environment that could potentially or does foster lawless action legal? It's a question about like, what do we do about hateful speech? What's the difference ultimately between someone saying on Twitter, as an example, I want everyone to go out right now and hurt as many Mormons as they can. But they're so nice. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's just imagine. But what's the difference between that and someone saying over and over again that Mormons are ruining the country and it would be best for everyone if they were ultimately eliminated? Greg, isn't it possible to create an environment over time that leads to the same violent results? Or why is the 1969 Supreme Court ruling in Brandenburg v. Ohio that stated that it was protected speech for a KKK rally advocating for the forced expulsion of black Americans and Jewish Americans from the country, the correct one, and why was the court's 1942 ruling in Chaplinsky v. New Hampshire the wrong one? I would start with the bedrock principle of the First Amendment, which is a genuinely smart principle for a genuinely multicultural society to have, and that is that you can't ban speech under the First Amendment just because it's subjectively offensive. And the reason why for that is that from decade to decade, even between genders, certainly from people from different groups, definitely for people from different economic classes, people from different religions, nobody actually agrees on our profoundly diverse country on what is offensive in all cases. And again, that norm changes from year to year, from region to region, and among different groups. So I do think it just isn't enough for it to be objectively offensive, for it to be banned speech is kind of the starting point. A rule that I think has proved to be very smart in American history, and I honestly think that other countries should adopt it as well. What isn't protected are patterns of behavior, for example, true threats, placing someone in fear of bodily harm or death is not protected, nor should it be. Discriminatory harassment, which actually gets at your pattern of behavior kind of discussion. Now, it, it's not something that applies to the entire country, but in a setting like a university, if you're engaging in a severe, persistent, and pervasive directed attack, directed speech at somebody that is discriminatory, um, severe, and pervasive, that might be racist or misogynistic or anti-black, that that can actually be discriminatory harassment. We think it should be a high bar so as not to overcome the bedrock principle. But yeah, like discriminatory harassment isn't protected as well. Now, getting to the 1942 case of Szaplinski, the funny thing there is watching a lot of people on the left discover Szaplinski and then argue that fighting words need to be banned and that we can use that to go after speech we don't like today. And I'm like, okay, so you're saying that you're cool with a law that would make calling a cop a fascist a criminal offense because that's the holding of Szaplinski. It actually it involves calling a mayor a racketeer and a cop a fascist. And it's like, no, you don't really think that or I'd be shocked if you actually do. And, and it's one of the reasons why Szaplinski hasn't been upheld by the Supreme Court since 42. When it comes to Brandenburg, I have heard arguments that Brandenburg standard is too hard to meet. And I'm somewhat sensitive to that one, which is essentially for speech to go to unprotected incitement, it has to be in a situation of imminent lawless action where the speech is likely to encourage that speech. If I say right now, we should burn down the mayor's office, that's not incitement. If I'm standing in front of an angry crowd near the mayor's office saying we should burn down the mayor's office, well, that's that actually is quite different. But the incitement standard is hard to reach. And that's one of the reasons why you saw so much debate about January 6th, for example, about whether or not it met the Brandenburg. The consensus is generally that it didn't, uh, but there are definitely people who think that it should have and, and that you need to adjust the standard for, you know, not just regular private citizens, but for politicians. So, yeah, I understand the argument of Brandenburg now, but the argument that essentially saying hateful things over a really long period of time can and should be something that is punishable. That was something that the Supreme Court tried under something called the bad tendency test, which actually was thought up initially by Oliver Wendell Holmes and who changed his mind about it maybe about 15 years later. Because the idea that if you could point to speech eventually somewhere down the chain having some bad tendency, so leading to some greater societal evil that you could ban it, it turned out that there was kind of no limiting principle on that. You, you could always make the argument that any important speech could arguably have some bad tendency down the line. 
and it got replaced instead by a clear and present danger standard, which eventually was supplanted by Brandenburg. And I do think that is ultimately the right call. And I really want to caution people that they have to remember that as much as your moral intuitions may say, well, I just think that certain speech should be banned. That swell and that if you had the button in front of you, as Ira Glasser says, that, that would say, I'm going to punish this speech, you, you might hit it. You might hit the, the magical button that allows you to. But you have to remember, you don't have that button. And if you gave that button to someone, if you wanted that button to exist, you'd be giving it to Joe Biden. Donald Trump, you'd be giving it to politicians, people in power. That's the only way that this can work. And do you really trust people in power with that kind of power to decide what's offensive and who shall be punished? Because history screams at you, you shouldn't. Greg, I've so enjoyed our time together today. Thank you again so much for coming back on the podcast. And to circle back real quick to something we said at the start about how free speech is an eternally radical idea. Because it can feel so unnatural at times, even though it's written into the history of our country, I think it's important, as you've noted, to defend speech that not only we agree with, but speech that we oftentimes find abhorrent because you have to set a standard from which everything else can grow. So thank you again for all the work you're doing with FIRE. Thank you for canceling of the American mind that you wrote with Ricky. And thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And, and definitely, if you're listeners, I would love for you to check out thefire.org. It's a wealth of information on freedom of speech and includes the campus free speech rankings, the schools that you should and you shouldn't be sending your kids to if they want to have freedom of speech. Oh, man. Yes. And if you want to see some of the poll results from the survey that FIRE did and what college students on campus think about free speech today, you might want to be sitting down when you read it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Always a pleasure chatting with you. Always a pleasure. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. If you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts. 